Um, okay, glad to be here with everyone. It, it's like, I think the last few weeks I have um, just been reflecting on how, um, this is one of the ways Melissa and I are very different. I feel very comfortable and delight in noise. Um, <laughs> um, it has been noisy in this room, and that has felt very joyful. So. Okay. Um, several years ago, in the first weeks of living in South Dakota, um, I spent a lot of time in professional development, um, not just to help myself become a better teacher, because um, I did not have a degree in education, um, but also to help me think, me and those that I was with, a big group of folks, um, to help us think about what it meant um, or what it might mean for us to be uh, white people living on a reservation. And at first, I was like, I'm ready for this, totally up for it. And then one day, I felt very much less up for it. On this day, uh, one of the elders of the community I was teaching in shared his hesitancy to the group about letting us come to their village um, to teach their children. And he shared the history of the Lakota and the harm they had endured from the colonizers. And his presentation was heart-wrenching. Um, wrenching. Um, and I have to admit that I had a hard time focusing on that because of the resentment that I felt being included in his narrative. Certainly, he knew that I was different than the settlers that stole their land and annihilated their ancestors. That evening, I was discussing this um, presentation with my roommate, who was a Native woman from another reservation. Um, and she was providing some extra context for why it might be difficult for some people, uh, some indigenous people, to let white people onto the reservation. And I was indignant. I felt angry um, that this fear and anger about the past was putting a filter on my presence in that space. And I kept saying, but I'm not the one that did anything wrong. I'm here to help. And I felt so deeply that I could not be held responsible for the sins of my own ancestors. And I had a really difficult time for a while, considering the implications of what my role was there, even removed from um, the folks that had moved in a few hundred, not even a few hundred, y'all, a couple hundred years ago. And it occurred to me later that I was still tightly wound up with those colonizers because of my race and the privilege it afforded me. And I recently told somebody um, about this moment where I realized that I have been the minority race in the room on a number of occasions, every day for three years, five years. And it never occurred to me that I was the person without power in that moment. It took longer than it should have. I am um, guilty um, and feel somewhat ashamed to say for me to understand that by refusing to see my role 
and my privilege and the power it afforded me, I was allowing and continued to allow systems and cycles of suffering and oppression to exist. There's this meme that I see um, like all the time that talks about privilege and it has a picture of pie and it's like privilege is not like giving up some of your privilege is not or wait a minute giving privilege or equity to other people does not take away your privilege it's not pie I'm butchering it but like either way I think it's wrong <laughs> actually like it is like um, I think that is untrue undoing systems that have allowed me to have privilege um, to care for others will likely take away from the privilege that I have. And the problem is that I can't see how that's a good thing. Will you pray with me? Loving God. As I said before, the noise in this room feels so joyful. Um, It's hard to bring it to an end (laughs) to to have one voice um, take over when others are so gleefully um, chattering away. I pray today that um, that when we are challenged, we have courage to stick with it, to not let our guilt become shame, um, to know that there is enough. God, your love is abundant, and you are generous, and we forget. I'm grateful for this family for them helping to remind me of that on so many occasions. May we love each other through any sort of hesitancy uh, or fear of risk. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. We're going to read today's scripture, which is a super familiar passage. Um, and if you want to follow along, it's Luke 23. Um, I'll be reading from the First Nations version, like we have been. And it's, it's long, because um, I could read just the first few verses, but I'm not going to. I'm going to read. <laughs> I'm going to read all the way to 25. Okay? So, settle in. Okay. Luke 23, verse 1. When they were done, they tied ropes around him again. All the ones who had gathered there got up and followed as they took Creator Sets Free, who is Jesus, to Spear of the Great Waters, who is Pilate, the governor of the people of Iron, who are the Romans. So they began to accuse him. We caught this man misleading our nation and telling people not to pay taxes to the government of the people of Iron. He tells the people that he is the chosen one, a great chief of the great waters, turned to Creator Sets Free and asked him, Do you say that you are chief of the tribes of wrestles with Creator, who is Israel? It is you who have said it, he replied. Spear of the great waters turned to the head holy men and said in front of all the people, I see no reason to find this man guilty. But they kept accusing him and saying, He is making trouble with the people of the land of promise, 
which is Judea, spreading his teachings from circle of nations, Galilee, to village of peace, Jerusalem. After hearing this and finding out Creator sets free was from circle of nations, he decided to send him to look brave, who is Herod, who was in village of peace for the festival, for look brave was chief of the territory of circle of nations. Chief Looks Brave was happy to see him. He had waited a long time for this, for he had heard much about Creator Sets Free. He was hoping to see some powerful medicine come from him. The head holy men and scroll keepers made strong accusations against him, so Looks Brave dug deep with many questions. But Creator Sets Free stood silent and gave no answer. Chief Looks Brave mocked him with his soldiers. They dressed him in a fancy robe and sent him back to the people of iron. Looks brave and spear of the great waters had been enemies, but on that day they became friends. When they brought Creator Sets Free back to spear of the great waters, he then gathered the head holy men, the spiritual leaders, and the people together and said to them, You told me this man was a troublemaker, but I questioned him and found him, guilt, found him not guilty of your accusations. Looks brave, one of your own people, also questioned him and found nothing wrong with him. Can you not see that this man has done nothing that deserves death? I will have him whipped and release him. By tradition, the people of iron would release one criminal during the festival. But they all shouted, No, not creator sets free. Instead, release son of his father, who is Barabbas. Now this man was a troublemaker who had caused an uprising and had been imprisoned for murder. Spear of the great waters wanted to release creator sets free, so he asked again what they wanted to do with Creator Sets Free. The crowd began to roar, death, death on the cross. Spear of the Great Waters quieted the crowd and a third time said, why? What evil has he done? I have not found him guilty or worthy of death. I will have him beaten and then set him free. The crowd would not back down. Louder and louder they demanded his death on the cross again and again until Spear of the Great Waters finally gave than what they wanted. He made his official decision, released son of his father, a man of violence, guilty of uprising and murder, and he turned creator sets free, the man of peace, over to what the people wanted. This is the word of the, word of the Lord. Feels weird to say thanks for that one. I totally get that. <laughs> um, one of the fun parts about Bible study to me, and probably not to a lot of people, <laughs> is the opportunity um, to learn about the world by analyzing the text. Uh, there will always be a part of me, I think, that is an English teacher. Um, like, and when I was in college, I got a minor in medieval and Renaissance time studies, but I didn't study, I didn't have a history degree, I had an English and anthropology degree. Um, I just find it like fascinating to learn about cultures through what they create. The Gospels are particularly a really cool way to do this. They provide interesting and exciting um, ways to see the world um, through different perspectives. The same story is told multiple times, but for di different audiences by different people. In each telling, we learn something different about each of the stories. The books were written relatively close together, probably maybe like a decade or so separating them. Um, speculation exists about the dates, uh, but there's pretty general consensus about the order um, and when they like 
in total happened, which would be probably like 60 to 100 or so years after Jesus died. Today's story shows up in every gospel. You've probably heard it a lot of times. We tell it. Like, I have preached on it multiple times, so I have told you this story multiple times. Uh, Previously, though, in Scripture, we have seen Pilate's back and forth with the people that have brought Jesus to him, trying to figure out what he has done and whether or not he should be punished. Something new in Luke's version is that Pilate decides to send Jesus to Herod. As, and he, he justifies this, that Jesus is from Herod's jurisdiction, if you will, um, and he can't figure out what else to do with him. And so we have this scene where Herod interrogates Jesus, but also doesn't get anywhere. Um, but he likes to have his power um, over Jesus in that moment, so he humil- humiliates him, but ultimately sends him back to Pilate. Pilate goes back to those that are accusing Jesus and says, okay, y'all, I can't figure out what this person has done, neither can Herod. Um, Like, he hasn't done anything wrong. I'm going to let him go. I'll beat him first so you guys are happy, but after that I'm going to release him. And the crowd that he addresses is persistent. Despite his confusion, he gives in, and Jesus is is kept in custody to be sent to the cross. And it occurred to me this week that this story across the Gospels is one that has been used to kind of figure out who is to blame for uh, the death of Christ. Even I, when looking at the past times I have preached on this story, preached that maybe Pilate could be absolved of some of his part because of the insistence of the Pharisees and the crowd. This week I felt unsettled by that idea. (laughs) I think when we kind of do that to this text, we're not getting a full picture of what's happening when we say, like, oh, Pilate is responsible for Jesus' death, or it was the Pharisees that got Jesus killed. One commentary I looked at suggested that Luke's version of the story was unique to previous, um, the previous Gospels, Matthew and Mark, um, and it shows the possible escalation um, of the time to blame Jewish leaders that the inclusion of Pilate's attempt to investigate Jesus' crimes further by including Herod seemed to show that the reader, show to the reader that Pilate had truly done his due diligence. Pilate washes his hands of the harm that comes to Jesus. He's totally cool with beating the snot out of him for whatever reason and letting him go, but the crowd is really to blame because of their insistence. He is making it clear that they should be responsible for the death of Jesus. That has certainly shaped many narratives that I've heard of this story today. Even one of my favorite pastors, Barbara Brown Taylor, seems to imply this in a pretty famous quote of hers that says, Jesus was not killed by atheism and anarchy. He was brought down by law and order allied with religion, which is always a deadly mix. We might look at this story and be able to see that idea, that the Pharisees certainly played a role, and also we cannot give Pilate a pass. He was a political leader during the time when even more politically shady stuff happened than today. It doesn't feel totally acceptable to say that his hands were simply tied. Instead, he does just give in. He doesn't understand what Jesus has done, but ultimately, that must not have really mattered to him. He didn't exercise any of the power that he actually held and he let an unjust punishment happen. 
And, and here is the thing, is I don't think that it is very fruitful to just play the ga- blame game here, like even now. Focusing on who to blame creates a false dichotomy between these characters, and the truth is Jesus was disruptive to both people and parties. Neither could safely continue with Jesus alive. Wealthy religious leaders that valued their comfort and status over those who, were me- who they were meant to serve could not do so with Jesus exposing them to everyone, and unjust political empires would not last with the threat of their people toppling with Jesus toppling their kingdoms to create the kingdom of God. The status quo that existed for everyone in this story was at risk because of the presence of Christ. Not just the people that hold clear and defined political power, but those whose privilege affords them a certain type of power as well. No one could picture an existence that was expansive enough to include the way of life that Jesus shared was possible if they followed him. Their lack of imagination and vice grip on the power they held kept them from seeing what good could come from a world with Christ present. And it occurred to me this week that even today when we spend time focusing on whether the Pharisees or Pilate are to blame on this week of the year, we're playing the same game the characters played in the story. We ourselves shift blame for any role that we might play in the ongoing crucifixion of Christ. We scapegoat history to let ourselves off the hook for any way that we might still be responsible for keeping Christ from the present world. I was unable to see the ways that I contributed to a historical oppression when I first moved to South Dakota. I didn't want to. I wanted to push that responsibility off onto historical characters. And today, I still don't really want to do that. I don't want to see the ways that I keep Christ present in others from illuminating the good road before us because it is threatening to my security and comfort. I don't always have the imagination for the kingdom, the courage to step in and stop the crucifixion because I'm afraid of the risk that it involves for me. I shared um, with my small group recently, and it came back up as I was preparing today, um, something that I'd heard on a podcast from Dr. Yaba Blay, who is a... Ghanaian-American professor, author, scholar, and activist who said that she doesn't really care about allies. <laughs> she, wants, she doesn't want them. She doesn't think they're helpful. She wants accomplices. She wants partners that are willing to put it all on the line for her and her siblings. And I will admit that my reaction still today, even writing that in here, was like, mm, uh, maybe... And in those moments, um, I really don't think I'm much different (laughs) than Pilate or the Pharisees or any members of the crowd. It is not a fruitful exercise to just um, shift blame and say, well, they're they're causing the problem, so they're the ones in charge of fixing it. I'm, I'm a good person. I don't cause any of the big problems that my siblings face, and so I can be absolved of any responsibility for doing anything about it. Because it's not true. I am responsible. And I wonder how might we, as we head into Palm Sunday next week, which is a triumphant celebration of Jesus' entry into Jerusalem, have an imagination 
for how that excitement is simply a taste of the jubilation that could come if Christ were not crucified? Or how might we see the good road opening before us when we relinquish our need to hold on to our own privilege at the expense of others? How might we trade in our fear for justice and love and kinship in the way that Pilate, the Pharisees, or the crowd did? And I, I want to end by saying, like, I don't want to pretend that this is, like, simple or, like, I have figured it out or that I even know anybody that has figured it out. Um, but that perhaps a spiritual practice we could all engage in would be to imagine what it might look like in the way that the characters in the story did not. Amen. If you would like to go back to your bulletin and pull up the Lord's Table Liturgy.